Luke chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 10. This is the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. But let's uh, hear God's word together. Verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Excuse me. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I think there are two pictures that Luke wants us to see in this story and more broadly in this chapter. A big picture and a small picture. In in the big picture, Luke wants us to see that Jesus has come to, to rescue His people from disease and death and disorder that has been brought into this creation through sin and the fall. Everything that makes a wreck of our lives, Jesus has come to rescue His people from. That's a big picture. In the small picture, as we think about the story of the centurion asking Jesus to heal his servant, I think we're taught something about grace and faith. And so I want us to look at both of these pictures tonight. The the big picture that, that helps us see that uh, Jesus is a great Savior who has come to rescue us from a world filled with disease and death. And the small picture that tells us that Jesus is a gracious Savior who will receive any who come to Him. So let's think about this big picture first. That Jesus has come to rescue us from disease and death. You know, I think too often we have, we have a very small view of Jesus. A, a, a shriveled view of Jesus that is tiny compared to the, the glorious Jesus that we meet in the Scriptures. The Jesus that we meet here in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke wants to help expand our view of Jesus and His greatness and His majesty 
and His power. He wants us to see the immense significance of the real Jesus so that we're not minimizing the importance of Jesus by believing in a, in a sub-biblical or sub-historical Jesus. Luke wants us to see think more of the greatness of Christ. And the particular issue here is, is that of disease. That Jesus has come to, to save His creation and His people from disease and decay and, and death. Now, I think we often do our best to, to overlook or to ignore sickness and disease. You know, we like to, we like to think that with the advancements of modern medicine, it's something that we can, we can put off, avoid, or at, least, or at least cope with in our lives. And don't, don't get me wrong, we should, we should be thankful for modern medicine as a, as a gift of God's common grace. That the, Lord, uh, that the Lord has given people. But, but advancements in medicine and the blessing of modern medicine should not blind us to the fact that disease and death are enemies that need to be defeated. That we need to be rescued from. And to, to confirm that reality, I don't think we need to look very far. Sure, we can look around the world. We can, we can look on the news and read about Zika. But we don't even need to go that far. We can look at our own lives. We can look at people we know and love. We can look at people who we, we know on a daily basis who are impacted by this, this reality. We probably all know people who, who suffer from, from heart problems, from mental problems, from uh, memory problems, heart problems, mobility problems, you know, the list could go on and on and on here. We know people who've suffered from disease. And, it, and it's something that impacts the young as well as the old. I've been asking for weeks now to pray for, for little Jay who has congestive heart failure. And just a reminder, this world is, is, is not as it should be. And and, and as you get older, the reality just presses in upon you, you more and more. You see your parents and, and your grandparents taking more and more medication. And as we get older, we see our, our weekly schedules being filled up with routine checkups with the doctor and with specialists. And as our bodies get older, uh, we, we see that um, disease and, and weakness and even death are, are inevitable. So that whether, whether if it's by disease or by, by old age, the person who, who once lived an active life finds their life shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until, until the most active thing they can do in a day is get out of bed and get something to eat and go to the restroom. This, this is the world we live in. A, a, a world plagued by disease and eventually certain death. And, and to the person who thinks this isn't a personal issue for each of us, I think we'd say to them, well, well you're young, just wait. Or we'd say, you are incredibly naive. Dr. Dr. Luke, remember Luke is a physician and he was well acquainted with disease and death. Luke 
assumes this is a problem that concerns all of us, that, it, that touches each of our lives in some way. And he, and he wants us to understand that Jesus saves his people from disease, decay, and death. Now his, his healing miracles in the Gospel are not just raw displays of power. And, and I don't think that we should understand the physical healings simply as... Uh, Acts that are meant to teach spiritual truths about Christ's power to save us from our sin. As true as that is, rather I think the healing miracles of Jesus, we should also understand them this way, are, are signs of His kingdom. And they, and they point us to the consummation of His kingdom when, when all things will be made new and, and those who have trusted in Christ will live in that kingdom where disease and death are banished forevermore. And so Jesus rescues his people from disease. That's what I think Luke is communicating to us here. Uh, in verses 1 through 10, which we're going to look at tonight, Jesus heals the centurion's servant who was sick unto death. And then in verses 11 through 17, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. One of my, one of my favorite stories. I can't wait to preach on it next week. And then in, in verses 18 through 23, Jesus is asked by John the Baptist's disciples whether Jesus is the promised Messiah. And Jesus says, essentially, here's the evidence. Look at what he says in verses uh, 21 through 22. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, yes, hear me loud and clear. It's true that these physical healings point to spiritual realities. We don't want to miss that. Christ opens blind eyes so that we can see our need and, and our need for Christ. Christ cleanses us. He, he, he heals us of our diseases. Uh, Christ opens our ears to hear the Gospel. Christ gives new life. Pro, Christ proclaims good news to the spiritually poor. All of that's wonderfully true. But the foundational importance of those spiritual truths should not cause us to miss the physical rescue that Christ provides for His people and that these miracles point to. We're not just disembodied souls. We are body and soul. And, and Christ rescues both body and soul. Jesus provides a real rescue from a fallen and distorted creation from diseases and from death itself. And so with that in mind, Luke tells us this story in verses 1-10. through 10. Uh, Here is this Roman centurion, someone in charge of uh, around 100 Roman soldiers, so a man of authority. And, and he had this servant that he highly valued, someone he, he really cared about. And this servant was sick and near death. 
Uh, imagine this, this centurion was a man of means, so perhaps doctors had already been hired and come to see this servant and had said to him, uh, to, the, to the centurion, I'm sorry, but there's, there's nothing left for me to do. But the centurion had heard about Jesus, so he sent these Jewish officials from the synagogue to, to Jesus and, and asked him to come and heal the servant. And In Matthew's account, we're told that the servant is paralyzed and is in great pain. Luke just tells us he's near death. You know, the, the death watch has started. He, he's in advanced and terminal decline. But Jesus, without even seeing this servant, without touching him, without speaking to him directly, is able to, to with just a word, restore this servant to health. What's the point? Jesus is able to rescue us from disease. Now, there, there's something important we need to make sure we understand. Luke, Luke is not trying to teach us here that Jesus will heal us of all sickness and disease now. Uh, when John the Baptist asks Jesus if he's one, the one to come or whether they should be looking for someone else, Jesus uses <clears throat> that question to make clear that he is the one who will come and, and bring God's kingdom where ultimately disease and death and disorder will be done away with. The words Jesus uses allude to uh, the prophet Isaiah, where in the larger context, Isaiah is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, where these things will be no more. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one who will usher in the kingdom. I am the one who will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And here are the evidences of that kingdom. I came across an illustration as I was uh, studying this passage, I, and I hope it's helpful to you. It, it helped me. Uh, it was a, a pastor in the UK writing, and, and he's quoting somebody else, so I don't know who gets the credit for this illustration, but it's not me. Um, quoting this other individual, he said this, the healings are signs of the presence of the kingdom of God in the same way that snowdrops are a sign of spring. Now, what are snowdrops? Remember this, guys, in the UK. Uh, snowdrop is, is a little plant that comes up in the winter, uh, just before spring arrives. So even when there's still snow on the ground, this little green plant will pop up even through the snow. And they are a sign that, that spring is on the way. He said the healings are, are signs of the coming of the kingdom of God in the same way that the snowdrops are a sign of coming spring. See, we, we, we still live in winter though, don't we? We still live in this fallen and cursed world where there is still disease and, and death. And the, the healing miracles are like the, the snowdrop plant. Signs of the arrival of the kingdom of God and that the full reality of that kingdom is yet to come. And help me think about that. I hope it's helpful to you. And so, but the big picture here of, of chapter 7 is that Jesus is able and, and will rescue His people from disease, all sickness, and death. And, and that means the only real and lasting hope for 
for dying and desperate humanity is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because, because He alone is able to rescue us from all of the consequences of sin. He, he alone is able to save us from, from the spiritual consequences of sin as well as the physical consequences of sin. He is the only one who, who can give us new life and He is the only one who can rescue us from a world plagued by disease. The big picture is about how Jesus rescues His people from disease and, and death. The small picture here teaches us a lesson about grace and, and faith. And, and the lesson is this, that Jesus receives all who come to Him. And when the Jewish elders go to Jesus, they plead with Jesus, giving, giving reasons why He ought to heal the centurion's servant. And, and, and it's clear, they think Jesus should grant their request, the centurion's request, because He deserves it. And so they, they come to Jesus and they say, He is worthy to have you do this for Him. For He loves our nation and He is the one who built us our synagogue. Now Luke is setting up a contrast that we'll see here in a moment. But the elders are basically reasoning, reasoning on, the, on the basis of merit. You see that there, don't you? Jesus, you should do this because he's a good man. And, and, and to a degree, they had a point. You know, this story indicates that this centurion was a great man, a gracious man, a loving man, a kind man, someone who cared for his servants. He was a man of means and and yet he used those means to, to build for the people a synagogue, a place of worship for them. It speaks volumes, the, the fact that the, the Jews are the ones making this appeal on his behalf because the Roman centurion represented the Roman occupation. He was, he was supposed to be an enemy of the Jewish people. So it tells you a lot about the respect that the community had for this individual. But you see, they pleaded on the basis of, of merit. Uh, they believed that someone who lived a good life was, was worthy to receive blessing. And this is how we're, we're prone to think. We think that if we are we're kind and generous and, and uh, we do good to others, that we deserve to have good things done to us. And then we'll even take that logic and apply it to life after death, if I'm good enough, if I'm kind enough, if I'm loving and generous enough, God owes me. God, I, I deserve this. I deserve to be welcomed into your kingdom. We think we can be good enough for God. Now the problem with that kind of thinking is that it forgets the problem of sin. The problem of sin that invades and, and infects all of our lives. And the, that way of thinking, it stands in contrast with with the mind and the heart that has come to understand God's grace. Because when we come to understand God's grace, there's, there's no place for saying before God, I am worthy. In fact, all we can say is, I am completely unworthy. I don't deserve a favor from Jesus. I don't deserve His kindness or His grace or His salvation. I don't deserve to be a citizen in in his kingdom, I'm unworthy. 
You go back to the story though, and looks like Jesus more or less just ignored the statement of the elders and went along with them to show this, this servant mercy. But then we see the contrast that I mentioned a minute ago, because while Jesus was on the way, the centurion sent a second uh, delegation, this time some friends, to relay a message on his behalf. The elders, now keep it in mind, the elders have just said, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And so you have, I think here, the contrast between the apparent worthiness of merit and the actual unworthiness of man. The Jewish elders reason on the basis of merit. You know, humanly speaking, the centurion lived a commendable life. Everybody else thought he deserved this help. They thought he was, he's a pretty good guy. He's active in the community. He's generous to others. He cares about people. He deserves this, Jesus. But the centurion, by the grace of God, understood his unworthiness. He knew he had no claim on Jesus. He wasn't even worthy. Isn't that remarkable? I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. And this is what happens, friends, when we, when we begin to understand who Jesus Christ is. You, you, you begin to understand His his infinite worth and, and majesty. And correspondingly, you, you begin to understand your total unworthiness before God. You see, for the Jewish elders, uh, they, they didn't, the problem was they didn't really see who Jesus was. They saw Him perhaps as somebody who could do marvelous works. They saw Jesus as somebody who could do favors for the worthy, but when, what they didn't see is that Jesus had come to show the favor of God to unworthy sinners. And when we look past you know, the cultural Jesus, when we look past the Jesus of civil religion, the Jesus that exists for us, the Jesus that exists to do favors for us, you know, the the, the pop machine Jesus, you stick a quarter in and push the button and get what you want. And you see the Jesus of the Bible, the, the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke. What, what, who do you see? You see the, the supreme worth and majesty and, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who is the, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of, of the world. The King of kings and Lord of lords. The ruler of, of the nations. The, the second Adam who's, who's come to repair and restore what has been lost in, in the fall. We see, we see this majestic King of kings who is worthy of all glory, praise, and honor. And when we begin to see the real Jesus... 
we begin to see ourselves more truly and clearly. We, we see that we are needy sinners who do not deserve the grace of God. And friends, this isn't some kind of unhealthy pessimism. This is, this is a healthy realism. The healthy realism that recognizes that God opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble. And, and, and at least part of the reason the, the centurion confessed his unworthiness was he had come to understand, to a degree at least, the authority of Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and I, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then this is why he said to Jesus at the end of verse 7, just say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, the, the centurion understood to a degree that there was authority and power in Jesus' word. Uh, he, he said to Jesus, you don't, you don't even need to come under my roof. You don't even need to come to my house. I too am a man uh, who has received authority. I, I understand what it means to possess authority, to, to, to say to a man, jump, and he says, how high? <laughs> but he understood Two, I think that Jesus possessed an unparalleled power. That there was an unparalleled authority in the words of, of this Jesus. The power of God Himself. The power to, to simply speak and to change the world. And so the centurion believes all Jesus has to do is say the word and His servant would, would be healed. He, he believed that Jesus, without seeing, without touching, this man simply needs to say the word, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. That's incredible when you stop and think about it. And look at Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this expression of faith, he marveled. Jesus was, he was amazed at this man's faith. The, the simple faith of relying on Jesus and His saving authority. And there were many, many reasons that this faith was amazing. It was astonishing. It was, it was amazing for a man of such status to see how desperately he needed help. It was, it was amazing for such a reputable man to see his total unworthiness. It was amazing to find someone who was, who was willing to rely entirely on Jesus and the power of His Word. And it was amazing to find this not, not in an Israelite, not in a Jew, not, not in someone who grew up in the covenant community of God's people, but, but a pagan Gentile. A, a Gentile who grew up outside of the covenant community. Outside, a stranger to the promises of God. Someone who didn't grow up hearing the Scriptures. A total outsider. And he's coming now and trusting in Christ with this humble faith. It's, a, it's, just, a, it's just a little picture, friends, of what God would accomplish through the Gospel and when the Gospel would go forth to the nations. And on account of this centurion's humble faith, Jesus healed His servant. When these folks get back to the house, the servant was well. All Jesus had to do was say a word and this man was rescued from the brink of death. And Jesus did it, not because the centurion deserved it, 
but because the centurion trusted in Jesus' authority to heal. As we think about this story, there are just three quick lessons that I want to give to you quickly here. First, we see that Jesus is willing to save all who come to him. Just reemphasizing the point here. Jesus is willing to save all who come to him. Even, even a Roman centurion. Even, even someone outside the covenant community of God. Even a stranger to the promises of God. Even someone who is considered an enemy of God's people. Any who come to Christ, he will never turn away. No one, no one is turned away. No one is, no one is shut out from the kingdom of God who seeks after the saving mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Any who come to Christ. Christ willingly receives in His grace. Regardless of social status, regardless of your background, regardless of your religious heritage, regardless of the things you've done, if you go to Christ, He will welcome you. My friends, have, have, we, all gone, have we all gone to Christ? Have we all, have we all sought His grace and mercy? We've all heard about it. We've all heard Christ offered to sinners. But have, have we gone to Him and have we experienced for ourselves that Christ is such a gracious Savior that any who come to Him, He will never turn away, but will receive into His arms. Christ is willing to save all who come to Him. Go to Him. A second thing we see in this story, we, we go to Christ not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of His grace. Uh, no, no one can go to Jesus and say, I, I am worthy to receive your grace. I am worthy for you to have, uh, to have you do this for me, Jesus. You, you owe me, Jesus. No one can say, I've done enough to, 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 to tip the scales and, and, uh, and, and earn your favor. See, my friends, we will not be saved by the, by the worthiness of our works, but only through faith, trusting in the worthiness of Christ and His work on our behalf. And the third thing we see here, <clears throat> that true faith is not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Christ and His power to save. It is it is trusting that God will evaluate us not on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of Christ's merits. It is abandoning trust in our works and our merits and any thought of deserving salvation and casting ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. Just say the word. You hear the humble faith in that statement. Relying totally on Christ's work and Christ's merit, and Christ's power to save. I think when we read this story, one of the questions that God would have us ask, ask ourselves is, what are, what, are we, what are we trusting in today? Luke is reminding us that Jesus is the same powerful Savior, the same gracious Savior as He was on that day when the centurion's delegation came and asked Jesus to come and heal His servant. He is a Savior who has come to rescue His people from, from sin and disease and death. And He offers Himself to us freely. 
And we must, we must acknowledge our unworthiness that we have no claim to Jesus and His grace. But that if you call out to Him, He will come to you. He will speak the words of, of salvation. He will give you the forgiveness of sins that we all so desperately need. And, and He will save you to the uttermost, bringing you one day into His kingdom. Dear brothers and sisters, a kingdom where disease and sickness and death will, will be no more. But we will dwell in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ forever lasting in the presence of our God and King. And so we learn here, true faith is not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Christ who saves us to the uttermost in both body and soul. Let's trust Him and let's pray.